startuprad.io, your podcast and YouTube blog covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Joe from startuprad.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from Germany, as well as the founder and host of the world's first internet radio station dedicated to tech entrepreneurship called startup.io. Radio. Today, I would like to welcome Max. How are you doing? Hi, Joe. Uh, this is Max. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. We will talk today about Endosane. Um, we'll get into the details soon. It's a joint venture, and we know some of the people that have that are involved there. But nonetheless, your main aim is to take medical components out of cannabis and treats psychiatric uh, conditions with that. That is the bottom line, right? That's what we're talking about today. And let me rephrase that just a little bit um, towards our aim is to use the endocannabinoid system in the body to treat these conditions. And um, some of the compounds by which we do that are going to be derivatives of the cannabis plant, but some of them are not. Some of them are not. Ah, that's an important point. And we have to be very precise and uh, uh, right to the spot because you are a lawyer by training. How on earth did you get into a pharma company? I mean, uh, without wanting to, to go uh, back to my childhood, um, I knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer forever just for the simple reason that it's a very subjective thing whether you're the type of person that wants to to deal with with sort of the same um, or very similar set of, of uh, circumstances or tasks every day. Um, I'm that's just not me. And I was um, somebody that loved to to go into different things and to think about new problems and new structures every time. And so I took the opportunity and when it presented itself to to move to make a switch towards management and uh, then was in a uh, medium sized uh, chemical company for um, close to four years, um, did management, uh, mostly strategy and M&A over there, and then moved into uh, Sanity Group and thereby Endosane later on. Aha, uh -huh. you already mentioned Sanity Group. We have an interview um, with Finn Hensler. I do believe it's by now approximately a year old, but nonetheless, we link it down here in the show notes for the very simple reason. Um, Sanity Group is basically backing Endosane, and this is a joint venture with a research group. Am I getting this right? That's uh, exactly right. So um, Endosane is part of the long-term vision of Sanity Group, which is to um, use the endocannabinoid system to help people, basically. And we do that in all different stages from what's possible right now and what's legal right now, which is medical flower and medical extracts, as well as medical API, for instance, THC, for the treatment of various indications such as pain. Um, but we also see that on the long term, uh, the pharmaceutical world tends to gravitate towards what we call finished pharmaceuticals, which a lot of people know through the very um, well-defined development stage through preclinical and then clinical phase one, two, and three development. And Endosane is the finished pharmaceutical play of Sanity Group, basically. Can we break this down a little bit Barney style for 
people like me who don't have any medical background whatsoever. So basically, my understanding is one researcher, for whatever reason, finds a compound, a product, um, a chemical that has some medical qualities. Then first you experiment with um, animals, then with human tissue, and then you go through different steps in the process of checking out if this really treats the condition you are aiming for. A very, very famous example, I do believe, are the very little blue pills that actually been um, intentionally created as a heart medication, but do have surprising side effects. Um, that is something that comes up, plus that it's also not harmful for your patients, right? Um, exactly right again. So um, in, in our case, I mean, how you get to the initial molecule can be different. Um, in our specific case, the endocannabinoid system was discovered um, some 30 years, some 30 plus years ago now. And um, it was discovered as one of the body's most important systems um, to regulate basically all kinds of different processes in the body, specifically in the brain. And then some researchers, amongst which um, the, the researchers of our team, um, namely Professor Marcus Leverke and Dr. Catherine Rowleder, were amongst the pioneers to look into the endocannabinoid system with a specific intent to find out and to explore its potential to treat these kind of illnesses. So you have this system and, and you look into basically what it can do. And what they found is that there were surprising connections between disbalances in the endocannabinoid system that you can measure through different tests and the presence of certain psychiatric symptoms. Specifically, and that's where we started, psychotic symptoms associated with, um, uh, with schizophrenia could be connected very strongly to a disbalance in the endocannabinoid system. Hence, the idea was developed to specifically target the endocannabinoid system to treat schizophrenia. And again, we have to emphasize again, that it's not you just smoking a joint and you're all well again, but this has uh, some long-term medical background with research going back to the, to the 1990s in some of the cases. Um, why are you guys looking for psychiatric conditions? Why are you not developing like another cancer treatment? I mean, there's, there's several reasons for that. And I think that the endocannabinoid system has a huge potential that I, I don't want to exclude any specific indication from. Um, however, um, our background is in neurology and psychiatry. And we also think that this is an area which was neglected or which was neglected is maybe a strong word which was not treated with the attention that it deserved in terms of research effort and research money and research resources over the past decades, really. And we see that the endocannabinoid system is specifically strongly in, strong in the brain. So the effect that you can have by targeting the endocannabinoid system is specifically strong in the brain. And so the, so the connection between psychiatric and neuropsychiatric uh, indications and the endocannabinoid system is, is fairly natural, fairly clear. And also, we have to just say that 
the background of our researchers lies in psychiatry and neurology. And um, that's where they found sort of one of the strongest connections um, between using the endocannabinoid system and treating these kind of indications for which current medication, um, quite frankly speaking, does not offer very attractive treatment options. Mm -hmm. I see. So basically they had a background in psychiatry and they've been digging through, like you said, molecules, substances and research what may be the potential treatments of, as you said, some of the symptoms. It's not like a switch, but it can treat some of the symptoms, right? And um, I would be interested how did this happen that basically a startup company like Sanity Group joined up with a research group? I mean, that's something you usually don't have happen all the time, right? And that's very right. But sort of let me just take one step back for the first part of your question, which was um, our our research team basically has a huge amount of experience in treating these kind of indications from a clinical perspective. So Professor Leverkin, namely, is a psychiatrist in the first place and treated hundreds of patients presenting psychotic symptoms or are, that are diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so what happened is that you take basically several kinds of samples from these patients. We're talking about blood and liquor from the brain. And you check the blood and liquor for what we call biomarkers or for certain markers for certain indications. And you try to establish something like a correlation or a connection between the two. And as I've explained before, with psychotic symptoms and the endocannabinoid system and levels of the endocannabinoids, there was a very strong connection that could be established. And that was really the basis for the development. And then um, the, the team from, of researchers pushed the development of a, of a compound for the treatment of schizophrenia from the university. They tried to work with public grants, with publicly available money, with money from the university. But the development of new drugs is very, very, very expensive. So while they were able to go through the preclinical stage, through phase one of the clinical trials, and even into phase two, they are not able on these kind of fundings to continue the development through phase two and specifically phase three. So at a certain point, they looked for partners that were able to give them infrastructure and funding in order to take the next step in the development. And that's really where we came into play. And we, there were several other companies and partners that they had talks with, but we were really one of their preferred options. And I might add that big pharma, the classical pharma industry is not really active in the field as of right now. Mm -hmm. I see that. That's very interesting. So basically, they've reached the end of what the researchers could do with their funding situation. Exactly. And then they basically look for talks and talk to you and you appear to be the best match. Um, you talked about uh, like stage uh, stage one, stage two, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three trials. Can you explain us a little bit 
what that actually is because my understanding is first a few people, then more people, then more people. And at one point you have to hand over most of the data to the um, authorities in charge, which means you kind of have to redo most of the stuff several times, right? Basically, yes. So what you what you have to establish for people, for the regulatory authorities to give you the permission to sell your product is you have to establish that your product is safe and you have to establish that your product works. That's basically it. So what happens is that, so first what you've mentioned before with all the animal and tissue tasting, testing, what you do is you get indications. You see that the animals are not dying by the hundreds just by touching the compound. You see that you, you, you obviously test the reaction of several these kind of animals or the tissue to the compound. And then you the phase one trials are really you test the compound on healthy humans. So the first thing you do is you ask people, often that works against the compensation, if they're ready to test your product and report how they were feeling, whether they've experienced any kind of discomfort or side effects. If that established that your product is safe and that the side effects were minor or limited, then you go into the next phase where you treat um, affected people, so ill people, but you don't treat a huge number of them. The reason for that is that basically two reasons. One reason is that ethically you don't want to subject people that need treatment to a treatment that is not yet established to help them properly. And secondly, it established more safety data. And on, on the third side also, it is a big economical risk to start these trials. So what you want to have is some sort of a proof of concept almost, so to speak. So you want to have more comfort in starting these very, very expensive phase three trials. So you do smaller trials before to get the first set of data and to see whether it works and whether it's worth it to pursue it in the phase three trial. And basically phase three is everything. Phase three is you look at the side effects, you look at the efficacy, and you have to show that your product helps people, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. And my understanding is with what you have right now, the compounds, the molecules that are helping to treat some of the schizophrenia um, symptoms, you are entering right now phase two, which means clinical trials of sick patients, right? Yes. Well, to be precise, we are already in phase two. So what have, mm -hmm. have happened is that even in phase two, you can have different trials. And what we've had so far is we had very small early stage phase two trials where we've already treated sick patients, but the number of patients is fairly limited. So we're talking about dozens of people and not hundreds of people like late stage phase two. And with these small stage phase two trials, we had very good data coming out of them. So we showed basically, or what, what the data showed is that the treatment with our compound is at least as effective as a very common generation two antipsychotic. Sort of that's the standard of care right now. 
So it's mm-hmm. at least as effective, but it has almost no side effects. And that's really huge different uh, because these antipsychotics for treatment of schizophrenia are amongst the drugs with the heaviest side effect profile amongst psychiatric drugs, right? So you have you you have problems with um, gaining a lot of weight, problems with um, sexual function in terms of uh, if males take it. You have problems with motoric functions. You can all have all these kind of side effects. And with antipsychotics, it's not one of 10,000 people. It's basically 10 of 100 people. So it's, it's, it's what we call the heavy side effect profile. And um, if we are able to develop a drug that can help patients to the same degree, but without subjecting them to these heavy side effects, that would be a huge game changer for a lot of people affected by these indications. Would that mean you help them to live a more normal life? Absolutely, yes. That would mean that uh, right now you you have to understand how debilitating schizophrenia is as a disease uh, or as a as a mental illness, and it's it's um, uh, certainly possible and, and 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 manageable to live with it, but it's very tough but the, the choice is a really hard one because the symptoms are really debilitating but so is the treatment in a certain way and currently available treatments you have really the choice of okay i i i have these symptoms that are really um really hindering me in my life but if i if i do the treatment if i take the drugs i might have these heavy side effects that also affect and impair my life significantly. I mean, there is no question that in a lot of cases or most cases, currently available treatment is still much, much better and preferable to not treating it medically. However, the side effect profile, as I've already pointed out, is is quite heavy. And this is why we are really trying to develop something to help people have a better life. And uh, what numbers are we talking about? How many people, like in a percentage, in an absolute number, are affected by that level of schizophrenia? So, like with all statistics, um, there is there is a range that people estimate, but the the lower side of the range uh, estimates that about one percent of the population is affected by it. That means that about seven to uh, about eight million people in Germany about 77 million people worldwide are affected by schizophrenia at any given time. And also, usually, um, it is something that you struggle with for a long period of time, if not for the rest of your life. So it's something that's manageable, but rarely curable at the moment. But that sounds like something a lot of um, really money-rich pharma companies would jump on. Is that the case? Um, unfortunately, that is the case, yes. And um, I, I, to a certain extent, I understand the rationale behind it. And that's really the reason also why we had the opportunity to jump on it. So let me first tackle why, in my opinion, a lot of pharma companies are not, it's not top of their list to develop drugs in that field. It has something to do with to develop drugs is extremely expensive. We're talking hundreds of millions of euros per drug. 
at the same time, with every drug you develop, the likelihood of it, when you start developing it, that it gets ever commercialized is limited. So we're talking about 10%, in some cases less, when you start developing it. Obviously, you spend money and you make progress and the likelihood is a little bit higher at the end, but it's still limited. Unfortunately, with psychiatric indications, the likelihood of success is fairly low compared to other diseases. At the same time, unfortunately, in our society, psychiatric conditions are still not viewed in the same way as other conditions, although they impact and impair society, at least to the same degree. So you have a, a big disbalance between how, for instance, we see illnesses such as cancer or other sort of more common, more tangible illnesses, and then um, uh, uh, mental disorders such as depression, schizophrenia, or something like that is something that a lot of people can really not imagine, and it's much less tangible than a tumor, for instance. And that really goes into the second part of the question, which is, why is it less likely to be successful with the development of a psychiatric um, uh, drug? It is because it is much harder to measure and therefore much harder to show that it works. So if you imagine it, and this is a gross simplification, so anyone of the scientific community, please excuse the degree of simplification that I'm doing. If yeah, don't worry, they, they, they're used to that. We need to simplify to, just for the very simple reason. You cannot uh, show a lot of graphics in, in what most people consume as an audio podcast. Exactly. Simply doesn't work. Be very sorry. If you have something to, to correct, write me an email. And so if you, let's say you develop something against cancer, let's say you develop something against a brain tumor, right? So somebody is diagnosed, sadly, with a brain tumor and you want to treat it with a new drug. The brain tumor has a certain size. And now let's say that your claim is either we make it not grow or we make it even shrink. So what you do is you treat the patients and at the end of the treatment, you take a ruler, you put it next to the tumor or next to the image of the tumor and you measure and if it didn't grow or it shrunk, you were successful. Right. This is a gross simplification, but it's, it's something that you can imagine. If now the symptoms we're talking about are always subjectively measured, it is measured through, I ask my patient how he feels. I ask my patient certain things. It is, I think, quite easy to imagine that this is much easier, much harder to get objectively right or objectively wrong. And also degree is much harder to measure. So if we talk about depression, and again, this is a gross simplification. Do I ask you how much percent do you feel better? Are you feeling better 10%? Are you feeling better 20%? This is very hard to get exactly right. So obviously the, the, the degree of sophistication with the question is much better. And there are ways to measure it. But... I think it's quite understandable how it can be much harder to get an objective response on the question whether a treatment is successful or not. And that in the combination is to the fact if you spend hundreds of millions of dollars 
as a pharmaceutical company on the development of a drug, you will take the indications with the highest possible likelihood of a successful outcome. And that's the reason why, or that's some of the reason, I don't want to presume that I know everything, but that's some of the reason why I think that large pharmaceuticals still shy away a little bit from developments in that field. And that's the reason I think that there is an opportunity for small companies, for startup companies, which is, I, I agree with you, a little bit unusual, right? But there is an opportunity for companies like Sanity Group to partner up with researchers and to try to find efficient ways of thinking, of decision-making processes, of lean structures to try to not only sort of limit overhead and costs in the development and make it a little bit more manageable, but also to, to go into niches that are not dominated so heavily by large corporations. Mm -hmm. I see. So that's basically the main reasoning you guys are doing it. We've heard you're now in stage two trials. What are the next steps? Um, uh, you, you shared with me a quite amazing article by um, a, a German uh, publication called Business Punk. Actually, I really like the picture of you guys on in front of it. Um, and they say uh, you want to have your uh, medication ready by 2025. I What mean, are the steps until there? 2025 is certainly very, very ambitious. I think that... Um, 2026 um, is more realistic at this stage. Um, I think that what we said is that we would be done with the clinical research in 2025. And then it really depends on how quick the regulatory bodies are in order to achieve um, commercialization um, in the markets. The next steps is to finish phase two trials. So this will take another 12 to 18 months, and then to move into phase three. It is possible to start phase three even before you fully finished phase two. However, without wanting to go into detail and then sort of to shorten the timeline by that, but um, the normal course of action is finish phase two and then move into phase three. And what, what we are still open and, and we are sort of exploring the best pathway forward is with the question of how will we move forward after phase two is completed? Will we partner up with a larger pharmaceutical company in order to do the phase three together and have a partner right away to do the commercialization effort? Or will we try to push through the phase three ourselves and, and only seek partners potentially after that? That's still open, and that's, I think, a decision that we don't need to take right now, but we can take once we have more clarity towards phase two and once we have more data on the running phase two trials. Sounds like uh, you have to decide either to do it yourself after phase two and raise something like, I do believe it goes into the hundreds of millions that you need then, or yeah. on the other hand, partner up with a big partner, for example, not related to any stages, but for example, as BioNTech did it with Pfizer for the Corona vaccine, uh, they also worked on production distribution and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, we're not there to decide. 
if but if you could wish for something, how the next few years would develop, what would it be? I mean, to be honest, um, there is a lot of passion and 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 work that we put into this and are still put going to put into it until the phase two is completed. So we would love to stay involved even after phase two and to stay on board um, until commercialization and after. So um, the third course of action, which I didn't coincidentally didn't even mention, was to just sell off the asset after phase two. Um, it would pain me a lot to do that. And so I think that um, the, the entire team would prefer to stay on board and in one form or another um, continue to develop um, the, the, the medication. Um, I think it's almost unrealistic to think that we could do commercialization ourselves because we're talking about such a vast market and uh, uh, such a big territory in, in, in the entire world to say that th to have the structures to be able to do that is really unrealistic. And it's not even, um, we, we don't even want to achieve that. So um, we would like to at some point partner with a larger corporation that is able to do the distribution and the production um, for and with us. Um, at what stage specifically we do that is something I think that uh, I don't even have to wish for right now because I just wish for this product to be successful and to help people. And I really mean that. Um, and if I can contribute to that, um, I'm very happy and very proud of this achievement. And until then, there is so much and there's such a big hurdle to overcome that I think I want to take one step at a time and to really think, okay, let's get the phase two done. Let's see if the data confirms the very positive data of the early stage phase two trials. And if that's the case, then we'll take it from there and we'll have a lot of options um, down there. But I want to mention something else is that we also have other compounds in our pipeline. So this is the first compound and this is the compound that's most advanced. But we have other compounds based on other molecules in our pipeline that treat similar um, uh, indications such as uh, um, social anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, which are also indications which are very big, but for which the currently available medication is not really, I, I, I will point, not really ideal, let's put it that way. And um, to also push the development in these, of these compounds into a phase one or potentially a phase two is something else that we are focusing on right now so that we are really trying to get closer to our vision to use the potential of the endocannabinoid system more broadly towards such indications. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty promising. That also sounds like uh, you guys are currently on a hiring spree to enlarge your team. W um, we, what type of people would you be looking for? Because usually the answer is developers, 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 salespeople, salespeople, salespeople. But I do expect a little bit <laughs> different answer from you guys. <laughs> Well, um, I think I, I would first start with saying hiring spree is maybe not the right word for us because one of the one of the things that we're really looking for is to keep our company lean in terms of 
people because we want the money that we have to go into the development and into the further research of the endocannabinoid system and further compounds. So yes, we are hiring. We are looking for pharmacists. We're looking for experienced managers of clinical trials that can be pharmacists, that can be doctors. Um, and uh, uh, we are doing that, um, but uh, um, it's, it's, it's a manageable amount of people that we're looking to hire. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And basically everybody who knows how to deal with um, chemicals in the human body and around the human body. Yes, and how to deal with clinical research specifically and the regulatory bodies that are associated with it. Because as you might imagine, the, the, the regulatory framework of doing these trials is fairly complex and it's important to know your way around these authorities such as everybody has heard this acronym FDA or EMA in Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. That's basically um, an understatement, pretty complex. Um, I would have one more question before we can close this interview. Um, are you guys, because there's uh, not yet a final decision made, what you will do in the future, but you guys are still open to talk to some interested investors, right? Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, we are... Um, currently approaching selected investors because the company, although it's a, a joint venture with Sanity Group, it was always set up in a way that allowed external third-party investors to come in, basically for two reasons. First off, well, it's very expensive and Sanity Group um, won't and to a certain extent can't finance the development until the end of phase three. Um, and also, this is a very specialized field and um, it's a huge value add to have investors that know what they're doing, that have contacts in the field, that have experience with these kind of projects, so-called smart money, to have smart money on board um, in order to go into the next stage of development. And I think that the investors we're looking for are, are usually specialized because it is a very specific type of risk that these investors are getting in because not only are we a startup, but we are a startup in a field um, where the, the likelihood of success is linked to a lot of factors that we cannot influence with our work. But there are investors that are specialized to do that. And the, the upside potential is obviously very big as of right now the valuation of such a company is still manageable. Whereas if one of these compounds were to be successful, then we're talking about a very, very different valuation. And don't ask me what it is, because I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad that will have been my last question. <laughs> well, Max, so far, thank you very much. Everybody who'd like to learn more, we'll link down here in the show notes, your LinkedIn profile, as well as the interview with Finn. Uh, by the way, just between you and me and something like 15,000 people listening to this interview, uh, how is it to work with him? I mean, I really like it, but um, we also have a uh, we're, we're on the same wave, wavelengths with a lot of things and we work super closely together. So I think um, I, I, I really like it, but I think it's not for everybody. <laughs> I see. And of course, we've linked the interview with Finn down here in the show notes. Um, 
your LinkedIn profile, website, interview, Finn. Yes, I mentioned everything. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. The pleasure is all mine. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.